This daily devotional is brought to you by Hope PR Ministry. We would love to hear from our listeners, and we ask that you would contact us at hoperwc at gmail.com with any feedback or questions you might have. We hope that you are edified by this content. The following podcast is part four of four of Professor Hanko's series, The Doctrine of Holy Scripture. Tonight we've come to the last of these classes on the doctrine of Holy Scripture, and the committee has asked me to address myself to the question of Bible translations. There was a pamphlet that was available in the back that I hope you have all picked up, not only, but that you have all read. I'm not going to repeat what is in that pamphlet, however. The pamphlet was intended to portray particularly the advantages and beauties of the King James Version of the Bible. Tonight I want to approach the question of translations from a slightly different point of view. You must be aware of the fact that since about 1880, that is, in the last 125 years or so, there has been a proliferation of Bible translations. I don't know what the latest count of Bible translations is, but the number must have reached at least 50 by this time, that is, translations in the English, without counting the many translations in other languages. Many are pleased with that, and many consider that a unique blessing that God has given to the church. Many others consider it a curse that can only be detrimental to the welfare of the church of Jesus Christ. That there is no satisfaction with any one translation is evident from the fact that the translations continue to multiply. In my estimation, this is sad. If you examine the reasons that are given why there should be new translations, the reasons almost always boil down to two main ideas. The one is that the King James Version of the Bible, which has been used in the English-speaking church for most of the years since 1611, is based on faulty manuscripts. I have a quote here that from a man who spoke in defense of the New International Version of the Bible. He puts it this way. The King James Version of the New Testament was based upon a Greek text that was marred by mistakes containing the accumulated errors of 14 centuries of manuscript copying. We now possess many more ancient manuscripts of the New Testament and are far better equipped to seek to recover the original working of the Greek text. So in other words, new translations are required because the King James Version contains in it serious errors because it is based on a serious, on a flawed text. The other reason that is given for 
preparing new translations, perhaps the most common one, is this. The King James Version is obsolete, archaic, difficult to understand, and of little use in today's world, which speaks a 20th century English. I have a couple of quotes here from the preface of the Revised Standard Version. The King James Version has grave defects which call for revision of the English translation. A major reason for the revision of the King James Version, which is valid for both the Old Testament and the New Testament, is the change since 1611 in English usage. Many forms of expression have become archaic. Other words are obsolete and no longer understood by the common reader. The greatest problem, however, is presented by the English words which are still in constant use, but now convey a different meaning from that which they had in 1611 and in the King James Version of the Bible. Those are two quotes that define the two chief reasons why it is felt that new translations of the Bible are necessary. Ted Letus, in a book in defense of the King James Version, thinks, however, that he has discovered another reason why new translations are so common. He writes this, The merchandisers of the world have conditioned modern man to believe that he must have variety and multiple choice for everything from toothpaste to gravestones. He has reached the point that if he does not have several options to choose from, he feels forced upon by some authority other than his own freedom of choice. No dimension of life is sacrosanct, including religion. Not only do we have a religion or a denomination for every conceivable disposition, but now we have Bibles to suit any temperament. In a certain sense of the word, he's right. If you look in a modern Christian bookstore, you can find Bibles for women, Bibles for children, Bibles for working men, Bibles in a parody of these popular books that are printed to aid people in using computers, Bibles for dummies. Bibles of every sort, Bibles that are supposed to be suited to every man's taste. I am in the camp of those who consider the proliferation of Bible translations a curse upon the church. And indeed, the point of my speech tonight is intended to rouse in you 
a passion for our King James Version. It is unexcelled in many ways by all the translations available on today's market. In order to accomplish that, I want to address myself to four different questions. I want to address myself, first of all, to the requirements of a translation. Secondly, to the textual question, and that is, I want to address myself to the question of whether it is true that the King James Version is based upon a faulty text and that recent discoveries of manuscripts have shown that the text underlying the King James is indeed filled with errors. In the third place, I like to address myself briefly to the principles of translation and finally sum it all up by a few remarks on the abiding benefits to be gained from our use of the King James Version. I want to start out by assuring you that I am not opposed to a new translation as such. It is not my claim tonight that the King James Version is perfect and that it is beyond improvement. If I had been opposed to different translations of the Bible, I would never, in the late 1950s, agreed to serve on a committee that would help in the preparation of a new translation of the Bible. I think I told you that story. I need not repeat it now. And indeed, one of the most serious defects of the King James Version of the Bible is its constant use of the name LORD in caps for what in the Hebrew is Jehovah. It would have been far preferable if the King James translators had retained throughout the name Jehovah. That name is God's covenant name, which more than any other expresses his unchangeable faithfulness to the promises that he made in his covenant with his people in Christ. That, to my mind, is the most serious defect. But you must not be alarmed if a minister on the pulpit, although he should do that very infrequently, should say to you, although that has little meaning, I suppose, today, the Dutch translation here, beloved, is somewhat more accurate than the King James. That can happen. Luther had his German Bible. The Synod of Dort authorized the Dutch translation called the Staatenvertaling, which was the Bible for the Dutch Reformed churches for as long as the King James Version of the Bible was the Bible of an English-speaking people. 
So I do not want to be interpreted tonight as being opposed as such to all translations and to a new translation of the Holy Scriptures. My main concern is twofold. In the first place, do any of the existing translations surpass the King James? My answer to that question is an emphatic no. They are, in all respects, some more, some less, inferior to our King James translation. My second matter of concern is this. Is it even possible in today's ecclesiastical climate to prepare a new translation adequate for use in the church, in the home, and in the life of the child of God? My answer to that question is also, just as emphatically, no. I recall when I was going to seminary and we were taking a course with Reverend Huxma on Reformed Confessions, I put the question to him, would it be wrong for the church of our day to make a new confession? His answer to that question was this, no, of course not. The church has a right to make a new confession at any time she believes there is a need for it. But, he added, the question is, is the church today in any kind of spiritual state to make a new confession? And his answer to that was no. I believe the same thing holds true for a new translation of the Bible. What is required of a new translation of the Bible? And you will, as I go through what I consider the list of qualifications for a new translation, realize that in almost every respect, if not in every respect, the King James Version meets these qualifications. It is the point that I want to make first of all, and most emphatically, that a translation, a new translation of the Bible ought to be the work of the entire English-speaking church. I do not believe that it is ecclesiastically proper for one small segment of the church, say the Protestant Reformed churches, or say even the Protestant Reformed churches in cooperation with the United Reformed Church and the Free Reformed Church and the Canadian Reformed Church to prepare a new translation of the King James Version of the Bible. One of the outstanding features of the King James Version was that because God in his all-wise providence 
guided the church in England in the early part of the 17th century to prepare a new translation. That translation became and continues to be the accepted translation of the whole English-speaking church up until this miserable proliferation of translations that characterizes the last century. That's the way it ought to be. And that's the way it ought to be in the interests of the work of the church. All the English-speaking church which still claims to be church and in which can still be found a measure of faithfulness to the scriptures in the interests of the cause of Christ ought to use the same translation if questions of doctrine are to be debated within the church world, if questions of Christian ethics are to be discussed on the basis of Scripture, it is impossible to have any fruitful discussion if everyone is using a different translation. If the Church of Christ is to fulfill her calling to seek union with the Church as it manifests itself in different parts of the world, of the English-speaking world. The only possibility of doing that is on the basis of agreement on a translation of the Bible. For the work of the church, therefore, a translation which is accepted by the English-speaking church is a translation which enables the church to fulfill her calling. In connection with that, and in closest relationship with that fact, lies the fact that translators who engage in the work of translation have to have themselves two qualifications. The first one is a deep, unwavering commitment to and determination to defend the truth of the church of all ages. That is, the truth as it is spelled out in the confessions of the church. You may answer and say, that's exactly what we don't want. We want translators who are unbiased, who can be objective, who can take a hold of the Hebrew of the Old Testament and the Greek of the New Testament and in a very objective way make a translation which accurately reflects both the Hebrew and the Greek. I say to you tonight, that is fundamentally impossible. No man can translate the scriptures without being biased. His bias is first of all. How does he look on the Word of God? What does he consider the Bible to be? The Word of God in its entirety or a cooperative venture between God and man that will make all the difference in the world as to the nature of his translation. But more than that, if he is, for example, an Arminian, that's going to affect 
his translation of key passages in the Scriptures. He must be, if he is to be a translator, a man who is committed profoundly to the Reformed faith. You say, yes, but such a commitment to the Reformed faith is going to affect his translation? Well, of course it is. It ought to. It must. He's derelict in his work if it doesn't. But the Reformed faith is the truth of Scripture itself and the truth of Scripture as it has been held by the church throughout the entire New Dispensational period and is contained in our own confessions. Only such a man is a qualified translator of Holy Scripture. It is impossible in today's church world to find enough men committed to the Reformed faith and capable of doing this work to prepare a new translation of the Bible. That's my firm conviction. There is an outstanding example of that, very simple. Many of today's translations, when they come to that passage, that well-known passage in Isaiah 7, verse 14, which in the King James reads, Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and thou shalt call his name Emmanuel, claim that that is a wrong translation because the Hebrew word there, which is translated in the King James Virgin, can also mean young girl. Perhaps married even, but it only designates a young girl. Now that's true. The Hebrew word that is used there can mean either a virgin or a young girl. There's no question about it. And so when one who wants to do injustice to the incarnation comes to that, his theological bias leads him to translate that from a formal point of view correctly as young girl and the miracle of the Incarnation is destroyed. There are two reasons why it has to be translated virgin there. The first reason is, of course, that Isaiah is speaking of a sign. The Lord himself shall give you a sign, Isaiah says to Ahaz. There's no sign in a young girl conceiving, but in a virgin conceiving there is. And the second reason is that Matthew quotes that passage in Matthew 1 and uses a Greek word there, which can only mean virgin, something totally ignored by those who dislike the truth of the virgin birth. There's a simple example of how one's theological commitment influences necessarily the translation of the Bible. When it comes to the translation itself, King James, who authorized the translation of the, uh, of the version we now use, laid down a list of qualifications. 
I want briefly to run over those because to me they are extremely important. King James insisted, first of all, that a new translation of the Bible had to make use of prior English translations. Tyndale's, Coverdale's, Matthew's, the Bishop Bible, the Genevan Bible, and so on. And that the translators might not depart from those translations except to make the King James more accurate. Now I want to call your attention to the fact that there's a fundamental question here at stake. The question is profoundly spiritual and affects our life. I want an answer to this question. When I take in my hands the King James Version of the Bible, which is a translation of the Hebrew and Greek, do I have in my hand the Word of God? That's the question. I have to have an answer to that question. If this Bible is to be the source of all our knowledge of the truth, if it is to be the rule and standard of all our walk in the midst of the world, if it is to be the fountain and source of all our spiritual life and the food of our souls, I have got to know that this Bible is without doubt the Word of God. If someone says to me, well, it's the Word of God, but it's not a very good Word of God because the translation is faulty or because it's based on faulty manuscripts, then I say to myself, I can't use it because I can't tell where it's faulty and where it isn't. I have got to know, and you have got to know, for your own spiritual well-being, is this the Word of God without qualification? That's another way of saying, is the King James Version of the Bible accurate? Is it accurate in all its parts? Is it accurate in such a way that no part of the Word of God is missing? That no part of the Word of God is corrupted in any respect? That no part of this version is an addition to the Word of God that originates with man? I've got to know that. And if I can't know that, I can't use this book. And we do not have what Peter calls a light shining in a dark place. The King James Version is far and away the most accurate translation of the Hebrew and the Greek so that in every respect, when we hold this version in our hands, we have the Word of God. You must not doubt that. You must not let all the ravings and rantings of modern translators 
put any doubt at all about that in your soul. You need not worry that if you read something in the King James, maybe you don't have the Word of God. You do, in every respect. The King James owes its accuracy to the fact that it is the culmination of a long series of translations, beginning with Tyndale's marvelous work and culminating in the Genevan Bible, the English translation prepared in Geneva during the days of the Calvin Reformation in that part of Switzerland. The translators took the other translations in their most accurate form and changed them only when accuracy and faithfulness to the original languages required it. They produced a Bible of amazing and outstanding accuracy. What do you have today? You have a Ken Taylor who all by himself on his own hook prepares a translation of the Bible without any regard to any other translations that have been prepared before him. He was right when, when, as he is quoted as saying, he said, I fear my translation is no good because every other translator of the Bible suffered martyrdom and everybody loves me for my translation. That was probably true. How can a man on his own with no regard for the church of Christ and with no regard for any other work that has been done set himself up as an authority to prepare translation of the Bible? It's the epitome of arrogance. Same thing is true when translations are prepared by commercial interests. The NIV was made possible, after all, only because of the deep involvement, the deep financial involvement of Zondervan Publishing. Now, I think, a subsidiary of Nelson Publishing Corporation. They financed it. They guaranteed its profitability. You don't make translations of the Bible that way. And certainly not accurate ones. Even without looking at the NIV, there is a deep suspicion about its translation simply by virtue of, of the origin of the translation and, its, and the involvement of commercial interests. The second requirement of a good translation of the Bible is clarity. We believe that an attribute of the Scriptures, as we have been at great pains to point out, is Scripture's perspicuity or clarity. That is, that Scripture is understandable to anyone who picks it up, regardless of age or education. That's true of the original languages, the Hebrew and the Greek. It has got to be true of a translation, because a translation must affect that important and absolutely essential characteristic of Holy Writ. That's what makes the Bible the miracle that it is. The infinite God speaks 
not only in human languages about himself and his works, but speaks in a way in which the simplest of believers can understand what he's saying. A translation has to reflect that. The King James does that. In the third place, the King James, uh, not the King James, any good translation of the Bible, and this is true of the King James, must capture what I can only call the dignity, the solemnity, the spirit of awe, which is in the original languages and which must somehow be captured by a translation. It has been said and repeated innumerable times that the Bible in the original languages was written in the language of the men of the street. That is simply not true. It wasn't written in the, la in the language of the man of the street. It is true that some parts of Scripture are closer to the common, ordinary speech of men in their intercourse with each other, and some not so much that way. If you read the prophecy of Isaiah, for example, in the Hebrew, beginning with chapter 40, Comfort ye, comfort ye, my people, saith your God. In that marvelous chapter, there is a soaring element about it in the Hebrew that carries you on wings of glorious rhetoric and outstandingly beautiful language into some kind of holy place where you are filled with awe at the greatness and glory of Almighty God. It isn't the language of the man of the street. It's the soaring grace and power of a prophecy that carries you, as it were, into the presence of God himself. Same thing is true of the Psalms. The Psalms are poetry, marvelous Hebrew poetry. Poetry that excels in beauty any poetry that has ever been written in the last four or five centuries or more in the English language. There is a power to the poetry, a power that gives to it all a solemnity, a dignity that reflects the greatness and the glory of God who speaks in the words of Scripture. To try to prepare a translation, therefore, that is of the, in the language of the man on the street, whatever that may mean, is to do injustice to the Scriptures and to rob the Scriptures of their power. I know that many people of God have said repeatedly, I like the King James, and I like the King James because it has a dignity about it, a solemnity about it, that 
lifts one's spirits and carries one above the things of this present time, to which translators respond, that wasn't the language in which the scriptures were originally written. I tell you, it was. It was. You must not listen to that stuff. I know that the Greek of John and of Luke is of greater literary value than the Greek of Peter or even of Paul when he becomes angry as he does with the Galatians. Oh, foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you? Would that they were cut off who trouble you. Then Paul can be fierce and sharp in his denunciation of the Judaizers. Nevertheless, the scriptures taken as a whole are marvelously beautiful and carry with them that stamp of divinity which points to the fact that scripture is the word of God. A translation must preserve that. Our English King James translation does. How many times do you think you've been through the whole Bible? Is it still possible for you to read Isaiah 40 without being moved to the depths of your soul? He shall feed his flock like a shepherd and shall gently deal with those that are with young. Or as the chapter ends, He that fears the Lord, his strength shall be renewed like that of an eagle. Marvelous, glorious passages, moving in their power. I know we are dull, senseless, oftentimes unaffected, by the soaring beauty of Scripture, partly because we are so familiar with it. But if you will only read Scripture in such a way that you hear it, and that you hear it in all of its beauty, who cannot pause and say, in the halls of Scripture, I stand on holy ground, and it behooves me to take my shoes from my feet. The King James Version has done that. I, for one, am totally opposed to any efforts to bring Scripture to the street. In the fourth place, Scripture has to be translated in such a way and King James insisted on that, that it is eminently readable. He wanted Scripture to be translated in such a way without sacrificing accuracy that people who hear it read will marvel at its beauty. And not only marvel at its beauty, because that's only outward, but be carried along on its rolling cadences 
The King James was prepared in a time when nobody had any books. The King James was prepared at a time when people who sat in church did not have a Bible in their pews. All they heard was their minister read. King James wisely wanted a translation that people would delight in because of the beauty of its language. Our King James does that. I want to say just a bit more about that a little bit later. But to me, one of the striking successes of the King James translation is its marvelous cadences. And the cadences are constructed so often in exactly the way that conveys most powerfully the passion of the text, the emotion of the text, if you will, if you will pardon the expression. There are those cadences that you have it, for example, in Psalm 46, that are the cadences of marching armies that surround Jerusalem. But God is the strength of Zion, and his presence in the holy city causes all the enemies to flee in consternation. The very cadences of the psalm convey the beat of the armies that come against the city of God and their inglorious retreat. How different, how different from those cadences of Psalm 23, where the cadences are like a quiet, meandering brook in grassy meadows. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He leadeth me beside still waters. He restoreth my soul. He leadeth me in the paths of righteousness for his namesake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. The sweet, quiet, comforting, alluring cadences of the pastoral psalm. Uh, what, what a sharp contrast between the cadences of the clash of swords and the screams of pain on the battlefields when the enemies of God's people are defeated. How different from the cadences when the sun and the moon stand still in the heavens because the creation fights for the people of God. All conveying, if you are sensitive to it, if you let the scriptures Speak to you if you put yourself under their influences. Cadences conveying all the nuances of God's holy word. I have to admit, I find it very difficult to read at the table without choking up that absolutely pathetic cry of David. Oh, Absalom, 
my son, my son, would I had died for thee, Absalom, my son, my son. I can hardly read Ephesians 6 and Paul's admonition to the church, put on the whole armor of God without snapping to attention at the command of the captain of our salvation. Stand therefore, says the apostle, with ringing shouts to the armies that march under the banner of Christ's cross. And having done all to stand, there's almost the bark of the sergeant commanding God's soldiers to be strong in the battle of faith. How are you going to surpass that genius of the King James by reducing the Bible to the language of the street? I want to address myself next to that question of text. This is a very complicated section, uh, a question, and I'm not going to get into it in detail or make it any more complicated than is necessary. As far as the broad outlines are concerned, it's actually very simple. When the church after the apostolic age spread throughout the entire Mediterranean world, the saints took the Bible with them in the Greek. But of course, because the printing press was not invented until the latter part of the 15th century, 1483 to be exact, scriptures had to be copied by hand. The church in Egypt copied the scriptures by hand. The church in North Africa did the same. The church in Palestine did likewise. The church in Syria did the same. The church in Asia Minor copied the scriptures. The church in Italy and Greece copied the scriptures. Communication was slow and difficult. And the result of it was that because scribes tend to make errors, there was a kind of a family of manuscripts that developed in different parts of the world. That is, the manuscripts that were prepared in Asia Minor differed in some respects from the manuscripts that were prepared in North Africa because there was no communication between the two and errors of scribes tended to be passed on. Now, the text on which the King James Version of the Bible is based is a text that was prepared especially in what we now call Turkey, in Asia Minor, and in Syria, or Caesarea, and was used predominantly by the church north of the Mediterranean. Now, it's interesting that that body of manuscripts, which was prepared in that part of the church, became the body of manuscripts that was used eventually throughout the whole church world. 
when communication became easier and when the church conversed with other parts of the church in different parts of the world, for reasons that are really unknown to us, the whole church adopted the manuscripts that had been prepared in Asia Minor, and they became the accepted manuscripts of the church. Most likely, that was because of the fact that those manuscripts were the most accurate and contained the fewest scribal errors. Over 3,000 of those manuscripts are available today. 3,000 that are almost in every respect alike. Now those 3,000 do not include the whole of the scriptures in every case. Some manuscripts were part of the Bible only. Other parts got lost in the process of time. 3,000, more than 3,000. Manuscripts are in almost complete agreement. That body of manuscripts is called the majority text, which forms the basis for the King James Version of the Bible. Along about the early part of the 19th century, two other manuscripts were discovered. One of the whole Bible, one of about 80% of the Bible. One was discovered in some dark and dingy corner of the library in the Vatican. How many years it had laid there, no one knows. But it wasn't discovered until the early part of the 19th century. Another manuscript was discovered in the wastebasket of a monastery called St. Catherine's Monastery on the slopes of Mount Sinai, where a group of monks wanted to dispose of it. It was rescued at the last minute by a man by the name of Constantine Tischendorf. Now those two manuscripts, after they had been dated, proved to be some of the earliest manuscripts available. In other words, all of these 3,000 or more manuscripts, which formed the basis for the King James, were of a later date than these two, one in the Vatican and one from St. Catherine's Monastery. It was on their age that all of these modern Bible critics jumped. Ah, here we have the true scriptures. And with a wave of the hand, they simply brushed aside 3,000 or more manuscripts as being full of errors and full of inconsistencies and almost impossible to use in favor, mind you, of two manuscripts which had come to light only in the early part of the 19th century and proved to be older. In other words, two older ones could simply negate the value of three or more thousand that weren't quite that old. Now, to me, that's nonsense. As one man pointed out, and with legitimacy, why, of course, the manuscripts that underlie the King James Version are of more recent origin. 
They were the ones that were used, those two dusty ones that were plucked out of the wastebasket and found in some corner of the Vatican Library, were never used. But when manuscripts are used, they wear out. And therefore, naturally, the ones that are used in the King James Version are the most used and therefore probably the most accurate. Now what troubles me about this is the fact that those two manuscripts became the basis for almost all modern translations, including the NIV. Maybe you've heard the name, the technical name, it's sometimes called the Westcott-Hort text. The fact of the matter is that those two manuscripts on the base, on, that serve as the basis for all modern, modern translations have no less than 5,000 omissions from the text that was used in the King James Version. And you're acquainted with some of the important omissions, the large ones. The whole narrative of the woman taken in adultery in John 8 is omitted from these manuscripts. The miracle of the stirring of the water by an angel at the pool of Bethesda is omitted from these manuscripts. The whole of Mark 16, its last chapter, beginning with verse 9, is omitted from these manuscripts. Major omissions. Omissions of importance. Omissions that are found in the King James and have been accepted by the church for 400 and more years as being part of the Scriptures. In the course of teaching in the seminary, I've had to teach a course in this subject, and I've paid close attention to this question, especially in my early years in the seminary when the question fascinated me. But the more, I have to admit, the more I studied it, the more bored I got with it. But I had to pay close attention to this question. And if careful attention is paid to the question, say, of John 8, the woman caught in adultery, and the stirring of the water at the pool of Bethesda by an angel that came down at unexpected times. The simple fact of the matter is that there can be no question about it, but that they belong in the Scriptures as part of the infallibly inspired Word of God. In other words, when this gentleman whom I quoted says, we now possess many more ancient manuscripts of the New Testament, then you must translate that many more as two. We now possess two more ancient manuscripts of the New Testament. That's all. That's all. Just these two. And so we are told that we have to repudiate the testimony of over 3,000 manuscripts in the interests of just two. That whole textual question undermines the veracity of the Word of God. You will not find a modern translation that does not rest four square on that corrupt 
text. Now, as far as translating is concerned, and this is the third point in my outline, I want to call your attention in this point, especially to the fact that principles of translation are important. If we believe, as we do, that the scriptures are verbally inspired, that is, that each word of the ancient Hebrew and Greek is inspired by the Holy Spirit, that has to become apparent in the translation. I'm not going to belabor this point. It seems to me it is obvious. All the translations available today, so far as I know, with the exception of the New King James, repudiates verbal translation in its translating theory. Many of the Bibles available today are simply paraphrases. That's all they are. The best of the Bibles available today that nevertheless do not follow the principle of verbal inspiration are translated on the basis of the principle of dynamic equivalence. What you have to do is read the, uh, a sentence in the Hebrew, figure out in your mind what the sentence means, put it in your own words in the English. Now, we may translate the Bible that way. When my father and I translated the book of Reverends Danhoff and Huxma, Sin and Grace, that's the way we translated it. We used the principle of dynamic equivalence. But you don't do that with the Bible. You can do that with man's words. And you must, if you are to put it in readable English. But when you're dealing with the Bible, where every word is the word of the Holy Spirit, you may not go to the principle of dynamic equivalence. No matter if you're on the far end of the, of the spectrum where Ken Taylor makes his paraphrase in the Living Bible, or whether you're on this end of the spectrum and dealing with the New International Version, you may not deal that way with the Word of God. And those who do deal that way with the Word of God do so because they deny the doctrine of inspiration as held by the Reformed churches and taught in our confessions. That principle of dynamic equivalence has become a deadly principle. It has been transferred into mission work. All the mission work of the church has to be done in terms of dynamic equivalence. If you're going to Jamaica, for example, and you're preaching to the Jamaicans or reading scripture to the Jamaicans, you're a fool and an unsuccessful missionary. If you read out of Isaiah, though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow simply because the Jamaicans haven't the foggiest notion of what snow is. And so you not only have to put Scripture in your own 
language, but you have to put it in the language of the culture to which you're bringing the Scriptures. This is modern missionary theory. And some are carrying it so far as to say, while the Bible, of course, teaches atonement for sin through the blood, the shedding of the blood of a substitute, that's so foreign to thinking in pagan lands that you have to have an entirely different concept in order to convey to them the power of the cross. But it's a language that denies substitutionary and vicarious atonement. That's modern mission work, all based on the principle of dynamic equivalent. That's why the King James is a treasure, because it is accurate and yet it follows the principle of verbal inspiration. I don't think it is possible to attain those goals better than the King James has succeeded in doing. Objections to the King James is its archaic language. One of the outstanding students of scripture of the last century by the name of J.H. Hill said that he found 17 archaisms in the King James Version which could really cause any trouble. 17. What's the big deal? I was reading in Thomas Watson the other day a book entitled Harmless as Doves, A Puritan's View of the Christian Life. This was recently published by Banner of Truth, no, by Christian Focus Publications. It has no warning in the introduction that Thomas Watson used archaic language which is difficult to understand. The publishers and editors simply assumed that any normal Christian could understand what Thomas Watson had to say. Let me read you a paragraph, short one, and show you what words he says, he uses. Circumcision was a great privilege, a badge and cognizance to distinguish the people of God from those who were, and here's a Latin word of all things, exteri, exteri, foreign. And then he repeats it, exteri and foreign. A pale between the garden enclosed and the common, that is a gate. The word pale there means gate. The people of circumcision were a people of God's circumspection. They went under his eye and his wing. They were his household family. Rather than that they should want, God would make the heavens a granary and rain down manna upon them. He would set the rock 
a brooch. Now within that short period of time, three words that are difficult for any modern Englishman to understand. What are you going to do if you read a book like this? Well, if you read it seriously and you want to find out what Thomas Watson preached about, then you will look it up. Isn't that the thing to do? You should never read anyway without a dictionary at your elbow unless you're reading Grace Livingston Hill or Tom Clancy. But if you're serious about your reading, then if you come across a word you don't know, you look it up. Supposing that J.H. Hill was wrong, and there are three times 17 archaisms in the King James Version, in 66 books of two testaments, some lengthy, and you run across three times 17 archaisms. Is that something that you're going to toss the whole book in the garbage can for? You have dictionaries, don't you? And if the words are so difficult, look them up. That's what I still have to do when I read some of these theologians' works. But no. Because there are a few archaisms, we're supposed to have to have a whole new translation of the Bible. I say nonsense. Nonsense. And anyone who talks that way, in my judgment, comes under the suspicion of really wanting to cast aspersions on the Bible. The Bible is clear. The Bible is clear with its archaisms. The Bible is clear with its sometimes admittedly obsolete language. I've tried it with the children. Asked them, when they were small, the meaning of archaisms. And surprisingly enough, rarely were they puzzled by their meaning. And if they were, it was the work of 30 seconds to tell them what the word meant. And because their attention was focused on it for a while, it increased their appreciation for what the Word of God was teaching. I cannot buy that argument. If you want to put a, uh, the Bible in the language of the street, you've got to have a new translation about every 20 years or so. I read a story a while ago. I can't vouch for its authenticity anymore. It's been too long ago, and I forgot where I read it. That a test was conducted in Philadelphia by men who were interested in the question of Bible translations. They took at random 50 people off the street. The one qualification for all these people had to be that they were unacquainted with the Scriptures. They put them all down in a room separate from each other where they could not communicate with each other and gave each of them the identical passage of Scripture in two translations, the King James Version and the NIV. And they asked these 50 people to write down in a paragraph what they thought the passage meant 
and which translation to them was the easiest to understand. Without exception, all 50 said the language of the NIV was foreign to them, and the language of the King James was a language which they found the easiest to understand. They could catch the meaning of the passage easier from that translation than the NIV. Now that says something to me. But I don't even know what the language of the street is. When two colored folk are talking together, I don't have the foggiest notion of of what they're saying. If that's the language of the street, God deliver us from a Bible in that language. Or is the language of the street the language of television? I think somewhere in Scripture, Israel, after the return from the captivity, is chastised because the children were speaking the language of Ashdod rather than the language of Israel. I find the language of television, the language of Ashdod, and half the time, I don't know what they're talking about on TV. I don't understand the language. I don't know what they mean by words that they use. Is that the language in which the Bible has to be translated to reach the common man? God forbid. But in the event that a Bible is attempted to be put, an attempt is made to put it in the language of the street, quote and unquote, the language of the street changes every 20 years or so. In fact, it's so bad that if college students addicted to the jargon of college talk, I can't understand them either and have no idea of what they're trying to say. Everybody understands the King James. And that's not because the King James translators attempted to put the King James Bible in the language of the street. They didn't. They created, with the translation, modern English. And that's the gist of a paragraph or two in the pamphlet which I hope you have read. That's the genius of the translation, and that's why it has lasted all these years. Final remark I want to make is that the matter of the solemnity and cadences of the Bible are important to me. I am a firm believer in the memorization of Holy Scripture. There are passages which I'm sure you have memorized as a little child and I have memorized but I can still quote today. When I was teaching catechism, maybe it's still the practice, I don't know. When I was teaching catechism, all the children in my Old Testament History for Juniors class learned Hebrews 11. I learned it myself by heart from teaching it to my children because you go over it when you have eight children time and time again. What a marvelous chapter. Today the complaint arises from parents. Oh, it's too hard to memorize. It's so long. Can't be done. We ask too much of our children. We mustn't do that. The more of the Bible we memorize, 
the better it will be to be able to quote it at length is to be closer to using the Bible for what it was intended, the rule of our faith and life. It won't be long and persecution will come and your Bibles will be taken from you. All the Bible that you will have is what you have in your heart. Sometime, when you can't go to sleep at night and you lie tossing on your bed, try going through the Psalms, beginning with Psalm 1, and see how much of each Psalm you can recite. Even if in its Psalter version, if that's more familiar to you. Psalm 1 that sets the tone of the whole Hebrew Psalter. Psalm 2 that speaks of the raging of the heathen and God setting his son on the holy hill of Zion. Go through the Psalter and see how many Psalms you can bring to mind and how much of them you can recite. It's a delightful exercise. Not just simply because it's a test of your memory, but the Psalms bring peace to the troubled soul and courage and strength to those who are cast down. They speak out of the depths of Christian experience. They are biographies of the whole life of the child of God in the midst of the world. Their cadences are memorable and glorious. We're almost finished going through the Psalms in our devotions at mealtime, and my wife said to me tonight, you know I'm going to feel bad when we're finished with the Psalms. I shared that with her, that sense of having to leave the Psalms behind for a while, while we go on to Proverbs. To carry the word of God in your heart is to carry it in a place where no one can ever take it from you. And it will continue to be your guide even unto death. May God grant that we keep our King James Version. Our Heavenly Father, we are thankful that Thou hast given us this time together over the past few weeks. We are thankful that we could study what Thou hast told us about Thy Word. It is our hope and prayer that under Thy divine blessing, our appreciation for Thy Word may have grown. Our devotion to it may have increased. Our love for it may have become a dominating power in our lives. For thy word is more precious to us than gold and silver. Thy word is a lamp unto our feet and a light upon our pathway. Thy word is the bread that feeds our souls. Thy word is the sword in our hands to slay countless enemies, and go forth conquering and to conquer. 
by the power of our Lord Jesus Christ. Thy word is the means by which we enter into fellowship with our blessed Savior, in whom is all our salvation. Thy word filled with its great promises comforts us in our sorrows. Thy word shines as a light from the distance, from the glory of the new Jerusalem, which is above, towards which we wend our weary pilgrimage. And that light beckons us onward and upward through all life's struggles, through all our failures, through all our carnal-mindedness, and through all the troubles that beset us in this world of sin. Thy word leads us heavenward. Now we see through a glass darkly, then we shall see face to face. May thy word be an important and unending part of our life. Forgive what we have done wrong and let not our sins spoil our efforts to appreciate thy word more perfectly. For Jesus' sake, amen. Thank you for listening to this message. It is our hope that it was edifying to you. Please subscribe to our podcast. We publish daily meditations, Heidelberg Catechism Lord's Day sermons on Wednesdays, and topical podcasts on Fridays. You can find more information about us at our website, hopeprchurch.org, and you can email us with any questions or feedback at hope rwc at gmail.com. Thank you.